Good morning, church. Uh, please stand for today's scripture reading. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and, with, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to, Jer to Jericho, and he fell among, ro among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed on by the other side. So likewise, a Levite when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the, gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him. And whatever, you, uh, whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. For of these three, who do you think proved to be, the to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, you go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Jeff. Jeff, uh is Canadian, and he wanted to read the Canadian version, which is about the Good Samaritan, eh? Uh, but uh, we, we made him read the good old ESV. Man, we're glad you're here uh, this week. I love hearing the church worship and sing. It's beautiful. And, uh, you know, that's what sing, singing is not just filler until we get to the message. When we come in, everything we have designed from the moment we kick off until the moment we walk out, it's, it's worship. Preaching is worship, singing is worship, and singing is so important because we're commanded by God. Uh, read Psalm 105, you know, the first few verses. It's just amazing, but, but uh, man, what I love today, I was just, I was thinking as I was worshiping today, you know, we talked about the all-sufficient, we sang about the all-sufficient merit of God. We learned so much theology about this, right? I mean, we, the all-sufficient merit of God, we learned that that we don't get to heaven based on our merit, but on Christ's merit. And one day we're gonna stand before him, and when we do, thank God it's not gonna be based off of trembling because of what I've done, but not trembling, but joy because of what Jesus done. We sing that, and it just drills it into our head, and then we sing, man, uh, you know, all my life, he's been faithful. When I sing that, that line today, you know, it just happened, to, it, you know, again, it dawned on me, you know, you're, you're either suffering right now, uh, you just come out of suffering or you're going to suffer. That's the world we live in. It's a broken world. And, uh, you know, when you do, your emotions can get clouded. And your head doesn't connect with your heart. and Man, you get confused. And it's like, why did this happen? And those, it's okay to ask those things. But, you know, when you sit back and you sing, you think, all my life, God's been faithful. All my life. You know, it just reminds you that I don't know what I'm going through right now. And I don't know why. Don't make sense. But when I can't see his hand, I trust his heart because he's always been faithful. Man, it's just so important that we come and we sing and we declare the truths of God. Thank you, church, for singing. It's just beautiful and, and it's amazing. And so, man, last week we started a brand new series. I was gone. I was in Miami on a conference and, 
and we started a brand new series going through the parables of Jesus. Some of the parables, we're not covering every one of them, there's a lot of the parables of Jesus. We're gonna talk about a few of those parables and we're calling it Secrets of the Kingdom. And why are we calling it that? Well, because that's what Jesus called them. In Matthew chapter 13, his disciples asked him, why are you teaching in parables? And here was his response in Matthew 13, 11. He said, to you, it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom. The secrets of the kingdom. That's where we got it right there, of heaven. But to them, it has not been given. So here's what Jesus said. This is why I teach in parables. To parables and illustrations in sermons are different. When I, I, I preach, you know, whoever preaches here, we usually use illustrations, right? I mean, uh, I use an illustration. When I use an illustration, it is to help you get the point I'm trying to make, to give you an example and go, oh, okay, I see how it connects. Parables are not that. Parables are opposite of that. Parables, Jesus said he taught so that people who really weren't his children, his kids, people who weren't a part of the kingdom, really couldn't understand it. Right, And so only those whose minds have been illuminated by the Holy Spirit can understand what he is teaching. But, and, and that's true, but that, that doesn't mean that his children always get what he's saying. As a matter of fact, the parables are some of the most familiar teachings of Jesus, yet they're also some of the most misunderstood. For instance, today we're talking about uh, the Good Samaritan. If you've got your Bible, the subheading over the passage that was read to you today by Jeff, says the Good Samaritan. And, and so it's one of the most famous uh, parables that Jesus taught. Uh, everybody knows about the Good Samaritan. Christians, non-Christians, church people, non-church people. I mean, we, we wanna teach our kids to be Good Samaritans. You, you hear about it in second, anytime, a natu- uh, anytime an average Joe uh, does something, you know, that's a selfless act, that average Joe becomes a hero and labeled a good Samaritan. Uh, we see it. And so, so we look at this parable and we think Jesus tells this parable to inspire us to uh, do selfless acts of service for other people, right? And to maybe do social justice ministry to help the homeless, uh, help those that are destitute, help those that are, that are down on their luck. And I, I'm not gonna deny that that, that is a part of this uh, message. That is a part of uh, what Jesus is trying to teach here, but that is not what really he's trying to teach. The secret of the Samaritan, which is what we're calling today, is much deeper than service, acts of service, selfless acts of service. It goes so much deeper and so much beyond, and so today, as we talk about this, I hope that it sort of fit the script and get you to identify rather than with the Samaritan with someone else in this and understand that there is a deeper meaning to this than just selfless acts of service. Now, let me give you some context. Because context is so important when you read the Bible. It's important in any conversation. I mean, if you just hear a sentence uh, or, or a phrase of anything I say that's taken out of context, you're thinking, wow, what did he just say, right? But when you hear it in context, it completely changes. And so the context is very important in any passage of Scripture. So let me give you some context. Earlier in the chapter, Jesus is approached by a lawyer who asked him an incredibly good question. Uh, he asked him, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, that's a really good question. As a matter of fact, it's a question that all people of all cultures throughout all of time have asked. It, it gnaws at our heart. It's such an important question. It gnaws at our heart so much that the, the Egyptians in antiquity, they buried people in their tombs. And I've been in a tomb of an Egyptian I, in the Great Pyramids. That's what the, the pyramids are tombs. They, the, the, they were tombs for their kings. 
uh, that, they, that you go in and you go down and, and, and there's tomb. And I've been in one of those. And man, it's a large. And why is it so large? They mummify the body and the body's there. But it's space because they pack the tombs with a lot of stuff. They put stuff in there because they wanted to take their stuff into the afterlife. They don't believe the old, uh, you know, the old saying that, you know, you've never seen a hearse pull a U-Haul because you can't take it with you. Well, they thought you could, right? Uh, you got the Greeks. The Greeks, they would bury people. They would put coins on their eyes and their mouth so that they could have fare to pay their ticket into the afterlife. Uh, Native Americans would bury their warriors often with their horse so that they would have a horse to ride in the afterlife. You see, the afterlife, eternity, it is something that weighs on our hearts of every people, of every culture throughout time. Why? Because that's the way God made us. We're eternal beings. We're not just here for a moment, life stinks, then you die. Uh, we are absolutely eternal beings. Our bodies die, but our souls never die. And it says that God has planted eternity in our hearts. So this is a really important question. And it's a question that I hope gnaws at your heart uh, too. And I hope you, some, I, I know that many of you have absolutely uh, discovered uh, through, as Jesus has opened your eyes to the answer to this question. And today I hope many more do so, okay? So, so this lawyer, he comes up and he asks Jesus a question. Now, a great question, but he wasn't asking the question to get information. He, he, he was not wanting to understand. He was trying to, to trap Jesus. He was trying to discredit Jesus. He was asking this question to try and, 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 and have Jesus answer, give an answer that was inconsistent with the law so that he would have it and he would discredit him. That's why he's asking and Jesus smelled that out. Because, I mean, he, he's a lawyer. Now, a lawyer in the Bible is much different than what you think, maybe. When you think lawyer, you think like Bart Durham, right? M uh, maybe not. I hope not. You, you think, uh, you know, uh, I can recommend some really good ones for you. You, you think uh, uh, lawyer, you think jurisprudence. You think someone who is uh, well-educated and, and maybe has a doctorate in jurisprudence who, who does civil uh, law, who, who, you know, uh, 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 criminal law. That's not what we're talking about. This lawyer... And the Bible is someone who is an expert in Old Testament law. And, and because he's an expert in Old Testament law, he really is an expert in, in, in the law of Israel because Israel was a theocracy, uh, right? They were under God, so the moral law applied to the state. There was no separation of church and state. And so he literally was well-versed in the law of God, right? That's what it meant. And so when he approaches Jesus and asks this question, well, Jesus smelled a rat immediately. Number one, he's man, but he's a fully God, so he knew what the man was thinking. But this was an easy smell because here is an expert, someone who has degrees on the wall in Old Testament law, and he's asking Jesus the most basic question that he should have known. How, how do I get eternal life? And so Jesus knew this guy's trying to discredit me, and he's trying to trap me, and Jesus does something brilliant. He does something very Jewish. He does something that is a great strategy in debate, uh, which he turned the question back to him, and he answered his question with another question. It's a great debate strategy, uh, and it's very Jewish uh, in thought. And he says, you tell me, you tell me, uh, uh, what does the law say? Brilliant. And I don't want you to blow by this. I don't want you to blow by this because it, it, it is very important for us to understand today. Uh, Jesus basically said, when this guy came to him and said, uh, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said, hey, you tell me, what does the Bible say? Folks, 
That is so important. The Bible, here's what we believe. The Bible is the inerrant, infallible word of God. The Bible is the word of God. It contains the words of God, right? And so, therefore, it, it, it literally is our authoritative uh, guide on every as- aspect of life. So our, our, the number one, the, the predominant, uh, the search engine of our life should not be Google, it should be the Bible. That, that should be the number one search engine that we go to for any question that's asked. In our world today, is a very confused world. And we're trying to navigate this world and we're trying to help our kids navigate this world. Heck, we're trying to navigate this world, right? And, and, and so uh, culture uh, keeps throwing stuff at us that, you know, it's like, what's blowing my mind? I mean, our friends, Washington, uh, you know, educators, I, I mean, everything, well, it, it, curriculums, it keeps throwing stuff at us and we're like, whoa, whoa. So we, we, we're continually need to say, what is this? We have so many questions. What do I do? What do I say? What really is gender? What does the Bible say? That should be, not what does Washington say? Not what does the media say? Not what does culture say or what my friends say or what's the the prevailing philosophy or thought of the, what does the Bible say about gender? What does the Bible say about sex and sexuality? What does the Bible say about my money? What does the Bible say about marriage? What does the Bible say about, uh, you know, uh, how I forgive? What does the Bible say? That's the predominant search engine. Should be for any believer. Jesus was brilliant. What does the Bible say? Let's just go to the Bible. Let's not go to your rabbis. Let's not go to your rabbinical tradition. Let's go to the Bibles, not the Mishnah, you know, what the rabbis, let's go to what does the Bible say? Great question. And here's how the lawyer answered the question. He answered correctly. He quoted the Shema. Shema. The Shema is Deuteronomy 6. It's Jerusalem's confession. I mean, uh, I'm sorry, Israel's confession of faith, the Jewish confession of faith, basically. Uh, The Jews quoted the Shema twice a day. And it says, hear, O Lord, uh, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. Love, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Uh, that's the greatest commandment, we're told. And Jesus said, and the second is like unto it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And so the lawyer quoted the Shema, love God, love your neighbor. That's what the Bible says about how you're right with God. Love God, love your neighbor. Jesus said, bingo, you got it. Go do that and you'll have eternal life. Now, you hear that and it sounds great, but you gotta pick up the remote and hit pause for a moment. Because the predominant teaching of Scripture, what I stand up week after week, month after month, year after year here, to teach you is that salvation is a sola gratia. It's by grace alone. It's through faith, by grace, through faith. It's not through works. Now, did Jesus here teach that we can do something, uh, that salvation is about what we do? Loving God with all of our heart and, and loving our neighbor, how we, is that a part of salvation? That's not what Jesus is doing, right? Jesus. Uh, the Shema, when the lawyer quoted that, Jesus basically said, yes, you go do that perfectly and you will have eternal life. In other words, Jesus said, you go be perfect. Keep God's law perfectly. He's talking to a lawyer who is uh, uh, basically versed in Old Testament. Keep the law perfectly and you will be saved because perfection is required. That's the point. Now, at that point, you know, the lawyer, if you were able to have a face-to-face conversation with Jesus, like this lawyer did, and Jesus, and you went up to Jesus and you asked a very important question, a good question, hey, what, 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 what must I do to have eternal life? What, what must I do to be right with God? What do I do to be, get into heaven? However you phrased it. And Jesus said, you go be perfect, don't ever commit a sin, don't ever mess up, and you're good to go. What would be your response to Jesus? 
Well, I, I, I hope your response, I, I know what my response would be. My response would be, I'm doomed, <laughs> right? I, I, I'm not perfect. I've never been perfect. Uh, I, I, I haven't been perfect since I came into the auditorium. Since the second, first service ended, the second, I haven't been perfect since I come on stage. I've not been perfect, right? I'm doomed, Jesus. Please help me. That's the right response. If that would have been the lawyer's response, then we're talking about a completely different question, right? I mean, a different conversation. But that wasn't his response. Rather than saying, are you kidding? I mean, you know, Jesus was basically teaching that the law, it, it, it doesn't cover your sin, it exposes your sin, right? It's like a mirror. You look into the mirror and you see what's staring back at you and you're like, oh my goodness, that's the law. It's pointing back. And so, which is important because here, here's what most people in our world do. If you're trying to share the gospel and, and you come to, to a question with some, someone today and you say, you know, if, if you stand before God and he, and he said, why should I let you into heaven? You know, and, and most people's answer, if you say that, why, what, how would you respond to God? You know, very few people, and I know it's a different world and it's, it's, it's probably getting more and more uh, likely that you might get an answer like this, but very few people would say, God wouldn't ask me that. He knows, man, I'm hell bound. I die today, I'm going to hell. I, you know, I mean, I'm whiskey bent hell bound, right? I mean, uh, that's not the most, what, what's the predominant answer? The predominant answer in our world is when you ask the question, if you're before God today and he says, why should I let you into my heaven? What would, what would be your answer? And most people would say, well, I, I, I'm a good person. I'm a good person, right? Here's what they mean. I, I, I look around and man, I am better than most people, right? I mean, you know, I, I, I used to love when I was in college to take courses that with teachers that graded on the curve because all I had to be was smarter than half the people in there. Bro, I got that in the back books, right? I mean, you just got to be smarter than half the people in the room, I'm good to go. And that's, that's, that's the way most people, I'm a good person, meaning I, they measure themselves off of everyone else. And you can't do that because you can always find numbskulls out there, right? And so what do you measure yourself off? Not off of everyone else or anyone else, off of God's law. When I look at the law, how do I measure up? I'm doomed. I'm doomed. When I look at the law, how do I measure up? Man, I, I haven't loved God. When you stand before God and, and, he, and if he said, have you loved me with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength? And you said, yes. Yeah, I have. I mean, I, I don't think anyone of you would say that. Uh, I think if you did, God would say, really? Well, then have you showed it with your thought life? Does your, has your thought life proved that you love me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? What you've done with your money? Uh, how you've forgiven people, how you treated your husband or how you treated your wife. I, I mean, on and on and on, you know, it, it's like, okay, okay, stop. I'm doomed. Help me. That should have been what that lawyer did, but he didn't. What did he do? He tried to justify himself, which is what we do when we say, look, I'm better than him. He tried to justify himself. So he said, who is my neighbor? Right? Because Leviticus teaches that you should love your neighbor as yourself. But here's what the Jews did, the religious leaders. They uh, defined your neighbor. They, they reinterpreted that as you should love your neighbor and hate your enemies. They limited who your neighbor was because it, it, if you limited who your neighbor was to, to them, if you were not a Jew, you were not their neighbors, but not all Jews was their neighbors because Jesus was Jew and they hated Jesus and his followers. So it, it boiled down to this. This will sound familiar to our world today. 
Here was their neighbor in, 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 in the, the Jewish world. Your neighbor, if he wasn't a Jew, he wasn't a neighbor, your neighbor, okay? But even if he was a Jew, he had to agree with everything you said or he wasn't your neighbor. Sound familiar to today? Man, you disagree with someone and you're, you're absolutely crazy idiot, right? I mean, I mean, that's just the way our world is. And, and so they limited who your neighbor was because that allowed them to hate who they wanted to hate. Right, and so here Jesus then, to answer to this question, he tells an incredible parable, a story, and, 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 and as we look at this, we're gonna see three different neighbors that I wanna point out. A bad neighbor, a good neighbor, and the best or a perfect neighbor, okay? Now, I want you to think about, let's look at first the bad neighbor, the bad neighbor. Now, Jerusalem sits about 4,000 feet in elevation above sea level. Jericho is about 1,000 feet below sea level. Uh, if you've been to Israel with me, some people were showing me their pictures that traveled with me there before, uh, after the first service, and uh, it, Jericho is in the middle of the desert. You go to the Dead Sea, and if you go in February, matter of fact, we, uh, we're, we're taking a trip in, in February, and we announced it a couple of weeks ago. On the day one, it filled up, but we got, we're getting another bus, we hope, so you call and we'll put you on the list or whatever. So, but you better call because if that fills up, that's probably all we can do. But uh, so if you go with me, we go down to the Dead Sea uh, and people swim the Dead Sea and we do all that. And then we go to Jericho because it's down and it's a desert. You're traveling from the Dead Sea to Jericho. It's all sand. It's all desert. And then all of a sudden you see these trees on the horizon. Uh, it's a literal oasis is what Jericho is. It's an oasis in the middle of the desert. It's 1,000 feet below sea level. Even in February, it's about 80, 85 degrees, very sunny and very hot. And then uh, when we get through with Jericho, is our next stop is Jerusalem. And we travel to Jerusalem. It's only 17 miles, but it takes a while to get there because it is, you go from a, a, a desert 1,000 feet below sea level to mountain uh, uh, 3,000 feet above sea level. You climb 4,000 4, feet in 17 miles. I mean, so it, it is winding even in today. And, and, and so uh, with that context, here's what's happened in Jesus's day. You wasn't on an air-conditioned bus with Wi-Fi and a bathroom in the back, right? You were traveling this long, winding, narrow, switchback road uh, and that was difficult terrain, but it was a cash cow for, for robbers and thieves. They would, they would ambush you. They would lie in wait, hiding behind rocks and cliffs and ambush you, beat you, and steal your stuff. And so, so they knew this. And so Jesus tells the story of presumably a Jewish man who is traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and it's so dangerous that they call this way the way of blood. And, and so he's traveling down, and just as what they knew was going to happen, man, he was ambushed by a band of thieves, thugs, and they, they beat him, they stripped him, they stole his stuff, left him for dead on the side of the road. Those were bad neighbors. I mean, that's a bad neighbor, right? And so, but it was his lucky day because just after they left, a priest was coming down the road. So here's a guy who's helpless, laying on the side of the road. He's going to die without help, and a priest comes. That's to be like, you know, your wife is in a car, and Man, her car breaks down in a sketch part of town, and man, here comes the pastor. You're like, oh, great, man, here comes the pastor. But the pastor don't stop. The pastor drives on by, right? That's exactly what happened. The priest, rather than stopping to help his Jewish brother in the ditch, 
he went to the other side of the road and scooted on by and went on down the road. Now, hope's not all lost because here comes a Levite. Now, what's the significance of a Levite? Well, all priests were Levites, but not all Levites were priests. Priests descended from Aaron himself. Levi was the tribe. Aaron was a part of the Levite tribe, Levitical tribe, the Levite tribe. But if you're not a descendant of Aaron himself, you were not a priest, you were a Levite. A Levite was like the associate pastors of the priests. They were like the temple guard. They took care of ceremonies. They took care of the building. They were the temple police and all this kind of stuff. And so here comes the ceremony guy. Here comes the associate pastor right after. So all hope's not lost. But it's an instant replay of uh, of. The, the priests that just come by. You got these two religious leaders basically that come and they just scoot by on the other side of the road. Jesus is giving you a great picture of a, a bad, bad neighbor. Man, you, a, a bad neighbor is one who attacks and oppresses people, right? You, you, the, the, the robbers and the thieves that, that attack the, the Jewish man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, terrible, terrible, bad neighbors. But, you know, uh, it's not just if you attack someone, uh, beat someone, or it's also uh, oppressing or neglecting someone. The religious leaders, the priests and the Levite, they were bad neighbors because they neglected this Jewish brother in the ditch. They neglected him, right? I, I mean, it's, it's, it's neglect. And, 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 and you know, a, a great example uh, of this is, you know, I mean, th their talk was they knew that the Bible said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And they come across a, a man beaten half, half to death and he's going to die without help. And they scoot on by and neglect him. Uh, man, talk is cheap. It's your actions that show, right? Like Karl Marx, you, 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 you've heard of Karl Marx. I mean, his, uh, his influence in many of the philosophies that are dominant in today's thought and many of the philosophical thoughts come from Karl Marx. He was this champion of the working class people. I mean, he, he was this champion, the, this working class people. He, he hated rich people and he loved poor people. And that's what, that was his champion. That's what his philosophy come from, right? Except he was lying to you because he didn't believe a word of it himself, right? He didn't have any poor friends. He hung out, rubbed shoulders with rich people. Right, I mean, and this is the guy that most of our philosophy, and, and, and it's not that he could have been misguided. He didn't even believe it because he didn't live it. Now, he, he, matter of fact, the poorest people that Karl Marx knew were his own family as his children died, and many of them died from malnutrition because of his neglect. That's the champion of the, the, of the working class person that shaped a philosophy that many people that are shaped, I mean, that, that shape thoughts, that shape the philosophies that, we, that, that, that attack our world. Are you kidding me? But you don't hear about those. But it's neglect. He neglected his family, right? I, I mean, so, so, so when we see a bad neighbor, Jesus lets us know really quick that, that you know, uh, uh, the religious people came by and, and they had excuses Man, I, who knows why the priests and Levite didn't stop, but they had an excuse. Maybe it was because they thought if they touch this guy, they'll be ceremonially unclean. But so what if they're ceremonially unclean? They can get ceremonial cl ceremonially clean because you serve a brother, right? Uh, they thought maybe they're late for a meeting. So what if you're late for a meeting? What's more important? What meeting's more important than serving a dead brother? 
Maybe they thought, well, the, the, the robbers and the thieves might be close by, and if I stop, maybe they'll get, well, so what, man? That's very selfish, right? You're not cared about your brother. There is always an excuse to do the wrong thing, but there's never an excuse not to do the right thing. That's a bad neighbor. It's not, don't think of bad neighbors as just attacking and oppressing, but also in neglecting. It hits a little closer to home. Now, let's look at the good neighbor here. The good neighbor. Finally, after the priest and the Levite, a Samaritan comes by. Now, give you some context, Samaritans and Jews hated each other. With a, I mean, with a passion, they hated each other. Samaritans were the descendants of Jews who intermarried with pagans during the Assyrian exile. And so the descendants, the Samarians, were this mixed breed between, and the Jews hated that. And so they hated the Samaritans. They hated them so bad that they didn't even walk through Samaria because if they got dust on their feet, they didn't want to contaminate themselves with dirty Samaritan dust, uh, right? They hated them. And so, so th- this parable, if you, if you look at your heading, subheading, and your Bible is called the Good Samaritan, well, uh, that's an oxymoron for a Jew. There's no such thing as a good Samaritan, right? I mean, the only good Samaritan is a dead Samaritan in, in their mind. And so, the, but the Samaritans hated the Jews as well. I mean, the Samaritans hated the Jews. They hated them so bad that it said that when they were rebuilding the temple, they would throw pigs in the, uh, dead pigs in the work area uh, so that uh, it would ceremonially defile and they would have to stop work and cleanse it. And so they just hated it. It was like Alabama and Tennessee football fans. I mean, it was that kind of rivalry. They hated each other. And so when the Jews uh, that Jesus is telling the story to, when they hear this, they're, they're listening to the story, and they're automatically thinking, okay, the priest and the Levite came by. They did nothing. Here comes a Samaritan. Well, we know what he's going to do. <laughs> I mean, he hates the Jews. The Jews hate him. If the Jew's half dead, he's going to finish the job, right? That, that's where their mind was going. But that's not what the Samaritan did. You see, the Samaritan had compassion. He had compassion. Now, compassion doesn't mean you just have a strong feeling. Uh, that might be what compassion starts with. I feel your pain. You tell people that I feel your pain, man. That's, that, that, that's not compassion. That's where compassion starts. But, you know, uh, you can also feel someone's pain and move to the other side of the road and walk on around them. I hate that. Man, I, I, got, I, I got, got to go do that. Uh, you feel their pain, but you walk on. But compassion is feeling the pain and taking action. That's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus is the greatest example of compassion because, like, he looked over Jerusalem. And he wept because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. He saw a broken world, and he, and he wept over them because he felt their pain. And you know what he did? He, he, he took it to the cross, and he did something about it. That's what compassion is. Compassion is when you have a feeling that moves to action, and that's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus uh, it had this feeling that moved to compassion, and that's exactly what the Samaritan did. He, he, he had this. He come by, and he sees the broken Jew who is beaten uh, half naked and half dead on the side of the road, wounded, bleeding, and unlike the religious folk, he had some compassion on a guy that he, his people hated, and he took action. He went over and he poured oil and wine on the man's wounds in order to, it's like medicine soothing his wounds. He took his clothes off and ripped them and made bandages. He picked the man up. He put him on his his animal, and he, he, he walked beside the animal to the nearest inn, doctor, and, and then he paid to have the guy nursed back to health, and then he opened up a tab, and he said, I've got to go, but I'll be back in a few days, but I, I open up a tab, and whatever it costs for you to get this man healthy, when I come back, I'll pay it in full. I'll pay it in full. Man, this is uh, just a, a, an incredible 
uh, uh, story of a good neighbor. A good neighbor is a man who takes action, right? A good neighbor is a man who, who has compassion and, and, and takes action. And so Jesus asked the lawyer at this point, so who was the man's neighbor? He flipped it back on him again. This is just brilliant, right? It's, it's amazing because the lawyer at this point knows he's been had. I mean, the lawyer knows he's been outfoxed because the lawyer, he's got the degrees hanging on the wall, right? He's got all the degrees, and Jesus, here's Jesus. Jesus is stealing thunder, and Jesus, as we, we, we don't know of any in the Bible where Jesus had any formal rabbinical training. I mean, you know, Gamaliel wasn't his, his uh, uh, mentor like he was Paul's in Jerusalem. And uh, I mean, he, Jesus has no formal training, yet he taught with, as one with authority. He knew the scripture because he wrote it. And, and, and this lawyer had literally degrees, and he thought, I, I'm going to burn Jesus in front of everybody. I'm going to make him look bad, and people's going to think, oh, wow, you're, you're smart. And now he's been outfoxed, and he's been had, and he knows this is brilliant. So Jesus, again, turns it back on him. So who was the man's neighbor? And the lawyer stuck. He's the one now that's trapped. He's the one now that's going to be discredited if he doesn't answer correctly. And so he says, well, the one who showed him mercy. He looked down. He couldn't even bring himself to say the Samaritan. He couldn't even bring himself to say it. Well, the one who showed him mercy. Now, all of our life, we have told and heard this story of the Good Samaritan. And typically, we like to tell this story and Maybe you go home and tell it around your dinner table, and one of your applications for your kids is, hey, listen, we need to be good Samaritans. I mean, we need to help people who are in trouble. We need to help the homeless. We need to help, you know, uh, people, the addicts. We need to help people who are down and out. You see somebody on the side of the road, you need to help people on the side of the road. We tell our, our, our kids this, and there's a moral story, and the moral story is, is hey, have, have good moral values, right? Do this. And, and can we argue that, that, that we can't? No, obviously, we picked that up in the story, and we should follow that example. But the secret of the Samaritan is not that you should uh, get so involved in justice and social ministries, uh, although that's important. That's not the secret of the Samaritan. To be quite honest with you, we want our kids, and we read this, and we even think we identify with the good Samaritan. Are we the good Samaritan? That's not the primary person Jesus wants you to identify with in the story, right? So let's look at the, 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 the perfect or the best neighbor. Jesus is not trying to get you to identify primarily, first and foremost, with the good Samaritan because that's not who you are. That's not who I am. That's not who he's trying to get you to, to identify with. Remember, he told this story in response to a question. What must I do to have eternal life? Followed up by another question, who is my neighbor? So what must I do to have eternal life? In context, he's telling this story to help us know how we get to heaven, to help the Jews know how you get to heaven. Because see, their belief was that they kept the law, that they did the right things, that they didn't walk but a certain distance on the Sabbath. They only did so much work and they offered sacrifices and they did this, they did this, they did this. And they're right with God, they're cool with God. Jesus is coming here and he's flipping that you know, thought, putting it right, and, and saying, your merit is not good. The all-sufficient merit of Christ is what gets you to heaven. He says, I want you to identify with the man who's laying in the ditch. That's who you are. 
That's who you are, the answer to your question. Man, because of sin, you are broken, and you are laying half-naked and dead in a ditch, and you can do nothing about it because your perfection is required for you to get to heaven. You have to keep God's law perfectly on your own merit. You would have had to have been born perfect, and then from the day you were born all until today and until you breathe your last breath, you have to be perfect. Never think a bad thought. Never do a bad deed. Uh, never uh, say a bad word. I, I mean, in love your, the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength is every fiber, every part of your being. Perfection is what you have to do. You're the man in the ditch. You're doomed. You're doomed. There is no way you can do that. There's no way. But Jesus comes along. Before Jesus comes along, guess what came along? Religion, Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve in the garden, right? They, 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 they sinned and they, they were laying in the ditch on the side of the road, basically. God comes to them. But what did they do before God come to them? They tried to make themselves approachable to God. Let's sew fig leaves together, right? They started doing something to try to make themselves more approachable to God. That's religion. That's what religion is. We gotta do this, we gotta do this, we gotta do this. If we do this, God will love us more. We work ourselves up another rung on the spiritual ladder if we do this. And, and, and religion comes along and goes on around the side of the road and does nothing. Ceremony comes along, goes on around the side of the road, and it cannot help. Jesus comes along. Jesus comes along, and he, he, he reaches down, and he pours you know, not just oil and wine out. He pours his blood out for you. He, 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 he didn't just, bam, uh, you know, bind up your wounds. He took your wounds as he was, by his wounds we are healed. He didn't just pick you up. He picked up your sin and put it upon him on the cross. And he died because he lived a perfect life and then died on in our place, the death that we should have died, taking the punishment that we should have took, on the cross. Jesus' point here is salvation is by grace through faith alone, by believing in Jesus Christ alone, who is going to take the penalty for your sin. So his, his first, when you tell this to your kids, uh, you need to always tell them, uh, the first and foremost, the person that you should identify with is the, is the naked dying man on the side of the street, the ditch that cannot help himself because that's who you are before God. But praise God, Jesus comes along. And he picks you up. And when you put your faith in him, you are made righteous. He, not because your works are righteous, but because he puts a righteous robe around you and he sees you as righteous because he always looked at you through Jesus. So that's, it's, it's his all-sufficient merit. It's his all-sufficient merit. And today, many of you have, have believed in Jesus and you've received Jesus and he's put a robe of righteousness around you and, and by his wounds, you were healed. He's poured his oil and wine and with symbols of the, old, the, the, the Holy Spirit. He's poured his Holy Spirit into your, to your soul and you're his and you're righteous and you don't always act like it. Uh, matter of fact, you do some very unrighteous things just like me. But you're righteous because when, uh, when you stand before God and when you stand before God one day, uh, you know, he's going to see Jesus and he's going to say, well done. That should make you absolutely be overjoyed. Some of you, maybe you, you, you thought you were in because you were the priest, Levite man, you, you, you were in the religion. Maybe you joined the church, but Jesus didn't change your heart. And so, so, so today, 
maybe you need to understand and realize it's only in Jesus who took my penalty and my sin. Maybe you're watching online. Maybe you're in a room. And today, if you're watching online, if you'll text the word Jesus to country code 1-615-551-9800, man, we'll help you know how to, to give your life to Jesus. Uh, if you're in the room, man, uh, you can do that in multiple ways. Uh, you can fill out the card, check it, and put it in a box, and we'll call you. Or, man, we got deacons every week that come and they stand under the cross or, or on this side in front of the doors. And why are they there? Why are these people there? Man, because we want to minister to you. For some of you, that means, man, I, the Holy Spirit's convicting you today, and re- you realize that, man, I'm the dude in the ditch on the side of the road, and I'm doomed, and I can't help myself, uh, and you need to turn to Jesus, and they can help you understand what that means. For some of you, it means your marriage is broken and in trouble, and you need prayer, and they're just here to pray for you. For some of you, you got a bad health report recently, and you need prayer. Maybe you want the elders to pray over you and anoint you with oil, and we do that because it's biblical, but your first is maybe to go to a deacon. For some of you, you got a child that's rebellious, or for some of you, man, you're just dealing with depression. Man, there's a thousand things I could mention, but you need prayer, and God's people wants to pray over you, and that's why they're here. Please go see them. I know you can come back to us, but if you have never given your life to Jesus, or maybe you've been playing a religious game, but today the Holy Spirit has helped you to realize it's only in Jesus. Don't delay. Come and see us today so that we can help you understand. It's only in Jesus. It's not in any other way. Only in Jesus. Now, so first and foremost, God, Jesus told this story to help you identify with the man in the ditch and say, that's me. But I think in telling the Good Samaritan, yes, there are implications to the gospel. You see, this is not just a a, a story that has great ethical story it is a gospel picture, not just an ethical story. But it is also something that we should look at and say it has uh, the gospel, love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. The gospel, love your neighbors yourself. That's the implications of the gospel. How does that play out in your life? Because if you receive the gospel, truly receive the gospel, your life will be different. Now, that doesn't mean it's perfect. You'll never be perfect. I'm not perfect. And for some of you, man, you can be an addict and you can give your life to Jesus and and immediately, man, that drops off and goes away and you might not ever do that again. But for most of us, it is a a sanctification. It's called a progressive sanctification, which means that it's a lifelong journey. Man, I, I still pray about sins and forgiveness that I've struggled with forever, just like you. But you know what, man? I found myself even this week saying, Lord, thank you that you have brought me. I know where I was in battle with this thing at this point in my life, I know where I'm in battle with this thing now, and I praise you for that, Jesus. Because there is a sanctification that's progressive because there's implications to the gospel. He changes my heart. He changes my mind. How The things that I want to say and the things that I want to think begins to change because why I look more like Jesus. And so how, how much of your life looks like Jesus, right? I mean, in context of our story, uh, He doesn't just say serve, if you're a Republican, serve the Republicans. If you're a Republican, you should serve the Democrats. If you're a Democrat, you should serve the Republicans. And in the context here, he says, it doesn't matter what country you're from. Listen, we do not have a a, a universal brotherhood, a global brotherhood, okay? There's, There's no global brotherhood. I have brothers and sisters, biological. I have a brother and I have a biological sister, but I have a spiritual brotherhood With whom? People who love and trust and submitted to Jesus. They are my spiritual brothers and sisters. Why? Because we have the same Father, God. 
God is my heavenly father. God, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, he's yours, that makes us brothers and sisters. So we don't have a global brotherhood. Everybody's not in our global brotherhood, only Christian. But there is a global neighborhood, folks. God has placed us in a global neighborhood and told us to serve. And in the context here, it's not just serve those who are like you, who look like you. It's serve those that are your enemies. It means, it means to be quite honest, folks, even on the third Saturday in October, I got a love in Alabama fan. Last year, I really did. But it means we serve those who are different. We serve those that we would even consider our enemy. It's easy to serve somebody like me that agrees with me. But what's hard is when, when they don't, right? What's hard is, I, I mean, I, I posted, listen, I posted in context of what he's saying. I posted one time on social media, you know, uh, I posted one time some information about some orphans and what was going on in an orphanage in, a, in another country. And someone commented on, on this post, uh, not my problem, take care of our own. Sad thing is that person claims to be a Christian, but it's the priest and the Levite. That's the priest and the Levite. Did you know that? That's what that is. Man, I mean, we've got, we, 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 <laughs> we've got this huge uh, issue within our country to where everybody just hates everybody that doesn't agree with me. And I mean, man, if you don't look like me, and I mean, you, you know, I, I see people all the time and in context of the message. Man, one of the things that absolutely just breaks my heart is when I see an, an immigrant or a refugee in, in, into America and they're trying to talk to someone and, and, and some American, or when I'm in another country even, and as an American, I get so embarrassed sometimes because as I go into other countries and I see Americans come in and they act like, why do they do it like that? You know, and, and, and all, uh, we do it so much better. And I get so embarrassed. I'm like, you know, or, or, or an immigrant or a refugee comes in and they've been here for a minute. And, and what I hear is, you know, someone, when I hear someone say, oh, you just need to learn to speak English. If you're in our country, you speak English. I'm like, Number one, <laughs> the only person who ever would say that is somebody that only knows English, never, don't know a second language, okay? <laughs> because, uh, you know, that's what they call in America, you know, when you're in another country, you know what they call somebody that knows three languages, that's trilingual, somebody that knows two languages, bilingual, somebody that knows one language, American typically, right? Bro, I, listen, I, I've tried to learn other languages. Good gravy. So when we say that to an, you're in our, you're in our country, man, that's like the priest and the Levite. I forget. The only people who were born in America are Native Americans, right? My name is Patrick Shannon, and I'm redheaded. Where do you think I come from? I like to claim I'm redheaded, okay? <laughs> I know you're thinking redheaded. I was at one point. Changed like this in my 30s. Because you people, I mean, uh, because of, uh, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. I, I, it, no, it just does that. Redheaded typically do that sometimes. You either red all your life or you're, you, you, you turn white, not gray. So I did my 30s. Here's my point is, man, the gospel has implications. You love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you love your neighbors yourself. And Jesus said, who's my neighbor? Every person in the world not the person that lives inside of you. It's not the person that agrees with you. That's easy. 
love your neighbor as yourself. True test of whether you love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. How do you do? So today, Travis is going to come out, and he's going to lead us in worship. As he leads us in worship, this is the time to respond. Our deacons will be here, and some of you, you today, you might have been identifying with this good Samaritan. Today, you, you, you oh, wow, I, I need to identify with the dude in the ditch, and I, I, I'm doomed, and, uh, you know, religion's done nothing for me. Ceremony's done nothing for me. But Jesus is standing there, and he's wanting to pour his Holy Spirit out upon your wounds and heal you. And he's coming back, and when he comes back, it's paid in full when you surrender to him. It's paid for. If you surrendered to him today, you can come and tell our deacons. There's cards. You can check it, put it in the boxes, bring it to us. You can come back and see us. For those of you who are believers, today is the day when you say, yes, I'm reminded that it's his all-sufficient merit. It is not my merit. It is his. Praise God. I, I, I just want to declare that. But it also should cause me to go, man, there, there's the gospel and there's gospel implications and do I love my neighbor as myself? I mean, do I really love my neighbor, the, the greatest commandment and the second greatest? It's about the gospel and the implications of the gospel. There, we all have issues. We all have areas that we hold on to in sanctification. Some of us, some of those things go away immediately, and some of them, we have areas that you will battle with the rest of your life. Right? And, and, and today, maybe you need to say, Lord, help me. Help me to be like you in every area. Maybe you need to come and pray. Maybe you need to pray with a brother or sister. Maybe you need to see one of our deacons. You respond how God leads you to respond today as we've learned about the secret of the Samaritan. Father, we love you so. God, you are just incredible. How you, Lord, have laid out this whole plan of salvation is mind-boggling. It's beautiful. We would have never thought of it. We would have thought of something we had to do. And Lord, we would have had a, uh, amends that we need to make and, and God, uh, things that we have to do to overcome our badness so that we can have enough goodness. God, that's what we would have done. That's what religion do when we create religion. Lord, uh, you flipped that and tore it all to pieces. You did it. It's all grace. It's all grace. It's all grace. God, I pray today people would experience your grace. I pray that non-Christians, Lord, would experience your grace as they surrender to you and let you take their filthy sin and clothe them with a robe of righteousness. And I pray that Christians would experience your grace. I pray that Christians would be convicted and that, that Christians would understand that your conviction is not judging, it is gracing. It's grace to pull us back. God, help us today to become more like you. Help us to live out the gospel, to receive it and live it out. We love you. We praise you. Do great things right now in Jesus' name.